Chapter thirty five of the Expedition of the Donner Party and its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Expedition of the Donner Party and its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter thirty five The Chamberlain Family, Cousins of Daniel Webster. Jefferson Grammar School, Further Conflicting Accounts of the Donner Party, Paternal Ancestry, S. O. Houghton, Death Takes One of the Seven Surviving Donners. Our school home in Sacramento was with friends who not only encouraged our desire for knowledge, but made the acquirement pleasant. The head of the house was Mr. William E. Chamberlain, cashier of D. O. Mills's Bank. His wife, Charlotte, was a contributor to the Sacramento Union and leading magazines. Their daughter, Miss Florence, taught in the public schools, and their son, William E. Jr., was a high school student preparing for Harvard. In addition to their superior personal attainments, Mr. and Mrs. Chamberlain each, for they were cousins, had the distinction of being first cousins to Daniel Webster and this fact also served to bring to their home guests of note and culture. Georgia and I were too closely occupied with lessons to venture often beyond the schoolgirl precinct, but the intellectual atmosphere which pervaded the house, and the books to which we had access, were of inestimable advantage. Furthermore, the tuition fees required of non-resident pupils entitled them to choice of district, and we fortunately had selected Jefferson Grammar School Number 4, in charge of Mr. Henry A. White, one of the ablest educators in the city. Several resident families had also taken advantage of this privilege, and elected to pay tuition and place their children under his instruction, thus bringing together forty-nine energetic boys and girls to whet each other's ambition and incite class rivalry. Among the number were the five clever children of the Honorable Todd Robinson, three sons of Judge Robert Robinson, Colonel Zabriskie's pretty daughter Annie, Banker Swift's stately Margaret, General Redding's two sons, Dr. Oatman's son Eugene, beloved Nellie Upton, daughter of the editor of the Sacramento Union, Daniel Yost, Agnes Toll, the sweet singer, and Eliza Dennison, my chum. At the end of the term, the Daily Union closed its account of the public examination of Jefferson Grammar School with the following statement. Among Mr. White's pupils are two young ladies, survivors of the terrible disaster which befell the immigration of 1846 among the snows of the California mountains. Even this cursory reference was a matter of regret to Georgia and me, we had entered school silent in regard to personal history, and did not wish public attention turned toward ourselves even in an indirect way, fearing it might lead to a revival of the false and sensational accounts of the past, and we were not prepared to correct them, nor willing they should be spread. Pursued by these fears, we returned to the ranch, where Elitha and her three black-eyed little daughters welcomed our homecoming and brightened our vacation. Almost coincident, however, with the foregoing circumstance, Georgia came into possession of What I Saw in California by Edwin Bryant. 
and we found that the book did contain many facts in connection with our party's disaster, but they were so interwoven with wild rumors and the false and sensational statements quoted from the California Star that they proved nothing, yet gave to the untrue that appearance of truth which is so difficult to correct. The language employed in description seemed to us so coarse and brutal that we could not forgive its injustice to the living and to the memory of the dead. We could but feel that had simple facts been stated, there would have been no harrowing criticism on account of long unburied corpses found in the late cabins, nor would the sight of mutilated dead have suggested that the starving survivors had become gloating cannibals preying on the bodies of their companions. Bare facts would have shown that the living had become too emaciated, too weak to dig graves, or to lift or drag the dead up the narrow snow steps, even had open graves awaited their coming. I, more, would have shown conclusively that mutilation of the bodies of those who had perished was never from choice, never cannibalistic, but dire necessity's last resort to ease torturing hunger, to prevent loss of reason, to save life. Loss of reason was more dreaded than death by the starving protectors of the helpless. Fair statements would also have shown that the first relief reached the camps with insufficient provision to meet the pressing needs of the unfortunate. Consequently, it felt the urgency of haste to get as many refugees as possible to Bear Valley before storms should gather and delays defeat the purpose of its coming, that it divided what it could conscientiously spare among those whom it was obliged to leave, cut wood for the fires, and endeavor to give encouragement and hope to the desponding, but did not remain long enough to remove or bury the dead. Each succeeding party, actuated by like anxieties and precautions, departed with its charges, leaving pitiable destitution behind, leaving mournful conditions in camp, conditions attributable as much to the work of time and atmospheric agencies as to the deplorable expedients to which the starving were again and again reduced. With trembling hand Georgia turned the pages, from the sickening details of the star to the personal observations of Edwin Bryant, who in returning to the United States in the summer of 1847 crossed the Sierra Nevadas with General Kearney and escort, reached the lake cabins June 22nd, and wrote as follows. Quote, A halt was called for the purpose of interring the remains. Near the principal lake cabin I saw two bodies entire, except the abdomens had been cut open and entrails extracted. Their flesh had been either wasted by famine or evaporated by exposure to dry atmosphere, and presented the appearance of mummies. Strewn around the cabins were dislocated and broken skulls, in some instances sawed asunder with care for the purpose of extracting the brains. Human skeletons, in short, in every variety of mutilation. A more appalling spectacle I never witnessed. The remains were, by order of General Kearney, collected and buried under supervision of Major Sword. They were interred in a pit dug in the center of one of the cabins for a cache, these melancholy duties to the dead being performed, the cabins, by order of Major Sword, were fired, and, with everything surrounding them connected with the horrible and melancholy tragedy, consumed.
The body of Captain George Donner was found in his camp about eight miles distant. He had been carefully laid out by his wife, and a sheet was wrapped around the corpse. This sad office was probably the last act she performed before visiting the camp of Keysburg. He was buried by a party of men detailed for that purpose. I knew the Donners well. Their means in money and merchandise which they had brought with them were abundant. Mr. Donner was a man of about sixty, and was at the time of leaving the United States a highly respectable citizen of Illinois, a farmer of independent means. Mrs. Donner was considerably younger than her husband, an energetic woman of refined education. End quote. After Georgia left me, I reopened the book and pondered its revelations, many of them new to us both and most of them I marked for later investigation. Bryant found no human bones at Donner's camp. His description of that camp was all-important, proving that my father's body had not been mutilated, but lay in his mountain hut three long months, sacred as when left by my little mother, who had watched over him to the pitiful end, had closed his eyes, folded his arms across his breast, and wrapped the burial sheet about his precious form. There, too, was proof of his last resting place, just as had been told me inside of Jakey's grave by the Cherokee woman in Sonoma. The book had also a copy of Colonel McKinstry's letter to the General Relief Committee in San Francisco, reporting the return of the first rescuers with refugees. In speaking of the destitution of the unfortunates in camp, he used the following words sympathetically. Quote, when the party arrived at camp, it was obliged to guard the little stock of provisions it had carried over the mountains on its back on foot for the relief of the poor beings, as they were in such a starving condition that they would have immediately used up all the little store. They even stole the buckskin strings from the party's snowshoes and ate them. End quote. I at once recognized this friendly paragraph as the one which had had its kindness extracted and been abbreviated and twisted into that cruel taunt which I had heard in my childhood from the lips of Picayune Butler. A careful study of Bryant's work increased my desire to sift that of Thornton, for I had been told that it not only contained the Fallon diary, but lengthier extracts from the star and I wanted to compare and analyze those details which had been published as thrilling events in California history. I was unable to procure the book then, but resolved to do so when opportunity should occur. Naturally, we who see history made are solicitous that it be accurately recorded, especially when it vitally concerns those near to us. Shortly before school reopened, Georgia and I spent the day with cousin Frances E. Bond, and in relating to her various incidents in our life, we spoke of the embarrassment we had felt in class the day that Mr. White asked every pupil whose ancestors had fought in the War of the American Revolution to rise, and Georgia and I were the only ones who remained seated. My cousin regarded us a moment and then said, Your grandfather Eustace, although a widow's only son, and not yet sixteen years of age, enlisted when the Revolutionary War began. He was a sentinel at Old South Church, and, finally, a prisoner aboard the Count d'Estaing. She would have stopped there, but we begged for all she knew about our mother's people, so she continued, 
mingling advice with information, I would rather that you should not know the difference between their position in life and your own. Yet if you must know it, the Eustace and the Wheelwright families, from whom you are descended, are among the most substantial and influential of New England. Their reputation, however, is not a prop for you to lean on. They are on the Atlantic coast, you on the Pacific, so your future depends upon your own merit and exertions. This revelation of lineage, nevertheless, was an added incentive to strive for higher things an inheritance more enduring than our little tin box and black silk stockings which had belonged to mother. An almost indescribable joy was mine when, at a gathering of the school children to do honor to the citizens who had inaugurated the system of public instruction in Sacramento, I beheld on the platform Captain John A. Sutter. Memories both painful and grateful were evoked. It was he who had first sent food to the starving travelers in the Sierra Nevada mountains. It was he who had laid his hand on my head when a forlorn little waif at the fort, tenderly saying, Poor little girl, I wish I could give you back what you have lost. To me Captain Sutter had long been the embodiment of all that was good and grand, and now I longed to touch his hand and whisper to him gratitude too sacred for strangers' ears but the opportunity was withheld until riper years. During our last term at school, Georgia's health was so improved that my life was more free of cares and aglow with fairer promises. Miss Kate Robinson and I were rivals for school honors, and I studied as I never had studied before, for in the history, physiology, and rhetoric classes she pressed me hard. At the close of the session the record showed a tie, Neither of us would accept determination by lot, and we respectfully asked the Honorable Board of Education to withhold the medal for that year. About this time, Georgia and I enjoyed a rare surprise. On his return from business one day, Mr. Chamberlain announced that a distinguished-appearing young lawyer, S. O. Houghton by name, had stopped at the bank that afternoon to learn our address and say that he would call in the evening. We, knowing that he was the husband of our little cousin Mary, were anxious to meet him and to hear of her, whom we had not seen since our journey across the snow. He came that evening and told us of the cozy home in San Jose to which he had taken his young wife, and of her wish that we visit them the coming July or August. Although letters had passed between us, up to this time we had known little of Mary's girlhood life. After we parted in 1847, she was carried through to San Francisco, then called Yerba Buena, where her maimed foot was successfully treated by the surgeon of the United States ship Portsmouth. The citizens of that place purchased and presented to her the 100 Vara lot number 38, and the lot adjoining to her brother George. Mr. Reed was appointed her guardian, and given charge of her apportionment of funds realized from the sale of goods brought from her father's tents. She became a member of the Reed household in San Jose, and her life must have been cast in pleasant lines, for she always spoke of Mr. and Mrs. Reed with filial affection. Moreover, her brother had been industrious and prosperous, and had contributed generously to her comfort and happiness. Some weeks later, we took Mr. Houghton's report home to Elitha. We also showed her a recent letter from Mary, sparkling with bright anticipations. 
anticipations never to be realized. For we girls were hardly settled on the ranch before a letter came from Cousin George Donner, dated Sacramento, June twentieth, 1860. From this we learned that he had on that day been summoned to the bedside of his dying sister, and had come from his home on Puta Creek as fast as horse could carry him, yet had failed to catch the bay steamer, and while waiting for the next boat, was writing to us who could best understand his state of mind. Next, a note from San Jose informed us that Mrs. Mary M. Houghton died June 21, 1860, leaving a namesake, a daughter two weeks old, and that her brother had reached there in time for the funeral. Of the seven Donners who had survived the disaster, she was the first called by death, and we deeply mourned her lost, and grieved because another little Mary was motherless. The following August Mr. Houghton made his first visit to Rancho de las Casadoras, and with fatherly pride showed the likeness of his little girl, and promised to keep us all in touch with her by letter. Mr. Houghton was closely identified with pioneer affairs, and we had many friends in common, especially among officers and soldiers of the Mexican War. He had enlisted in Company A of Stevenson's Regiment of New York Volunteers when barely eighteen years of age, and sailed with it from his native state on the 26th of September, 1846. After an eventful voyage by way of Cape Horn, the good ship Lu Chu, which bore him hither, cast anchor in the Bay of San Francisco, March 26, 1847, about the time the third relief was bringing us little girls over the mountains. His company being part of the detachment ordered to Mexico under Colonel Burton, he went at once into active service, was promoted through intermediate grades, and appointed lieutenant, an adjutant on the staff of Colonel Burton, before his twentieth year. Following an honorable discharge at the close of the war, and a year's exciting experiences in the gold fields, he settled in San Jose in November 1849, then the capital city. His knowledge of the Spanish and French languages, fitting him specially therefore, he turned his attention to legislative and municipal matters. As clerk of the Senate Judiciary Committee of the first session of the California Legislature, he helped to formulate statutes for enactment, they being promulgated in Spanish as well as English at that time. During the period between 1851 and 1860, he held several official positions, among them that of President of the City Council, and on his 25th birthday he was elected Mayor of San Jose. Meanwhile, he had organized the Eagle Guard, one of the first independent military companies in the state, and had also been successively promoted from adjutant to ordnance officer, with the rank of lieutenant colonel, on Major General Halleck's staff of the state militia. Moreover, he had completed the study of law in the office of Judge W. T. Wallace, been admitted to the bar, and was now actively engaged in the practice of his profession. End of chapter 35